I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Mr. Chairman, Senator Thurman, members of the committee, my name is Anita F. Hill. And I'm a professor. This fall marks the 30th anniversary of the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. In 1981, I was introduced to now Judge Thomas by a mutual friend. On October 11th, 1991, Anita Hill testified before Congress that the Supreme Court nominee had sexually harassed her when they worked together at two government agencies a decade before. What happened next and telling the world about it are the two most difficult things, experiences of my life. It was a truly historic moment. It's hard to even imagine now, given the past couple of years and the advent of Me Too. But before Anita Hill shared her detailed testimony in front of an all-white male panel, the term sexual harassment, let alone the act of it, had never really been talked about publicly and in front of a television audience. That was a turning point. It brought sexual harassment into the national conversation in a way it had not been before. Countless women, I think, identified with the experiences that Anita Hill spoke about very movingly, very powerfully at the hearing. Deborah Turkheimer is a law professor at Northwestern University. She's also the author of the new book, Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers, and protect abusers. Way back when, sexual harassment wasn't even a term that anyone recognized. It had to be coined before there could be this common vernacular and people could then begin to identify their experiences as experiences that other people had too. Other, particularly women in the workplace, particularly vulnerable, marginalized women in the workplace, that this was something that wasn't idiosyncratic. It was patterned. And, and there were commonalities to it. And so this consciousness raising is, is a really important aspect of, of sort of what feminism is. And then when you have a high profile event like the Anita Hill testimony and you have the, the, the entire country transfixed and 
processing and, and, and reaching, you know, different conclusions, but nevertheless focused on this as an issue, I think it does really galvanize new understandings and, and important conversations. After a brief discussion of work, he would turn the conversation to a discussion of sexual matters. His conversations were very vivid. On several occasions, Thomas told me graphically of his own sexual prowess. This was a really important step in the direction of societal acknowledgement that this is a problem and a sense on the part of sexual harassment victims that this doesn't have to be tolerated, that this isn't something that is normalized, it's not something that's okay. Now that doesn't mean that victims will necessarily come forward. There are lots of reasons why that's going to be difficult, but more so than before her testimony, I think victims of workplace harassment understood that this was not okay. How reliable is your testimony in October of 1991 on events that occurred eight, 10 years ago? How sure can you expect this committee to be on the accuracy of your statements? I guess one really does have to understand something about the nature of sexual harassment. Uh, it is very difficult for people to come forward with these things. She came forward having worked at the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, under Clarence Thomas, having, she said, experienced some fairly serious sexual harassment at his hands. He commented on what I was wearing in terms of whether it made me more or less sexually attractive. Who has put pubic hair on my coat? He referred to the size of his own penis as being larger than normal, and he also spoke on some occasions of the pleasure. So when Anita Hill came forward and told her story, she was treated horribly. She was treated horribly by the senators who were responsible for conducting these hearings. It is appropriate to ask Professor Hill anything any member wishes to ask her. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have anything to gain by coming here? To plumb the depths of her credibility. Are you interested in writing a book? You testified this morning that the most embarrassing question involved, this is not too bad, women's large breasts. That's a word we use all the time. The witness did not say anything to the FBI about uh, the described size of his penis, the description of the movie Long Dong Silver. You are not now drawing a conclusion that Judge Thomas sexually harassed you. Yes, I am drawing that conclusion. That well, is then my... I don't understand. Pardon me? Then I don't understand. This is an example of the credibility complex kicked into high gear. This was someone who was coming forward against a very powerful man who was seen by many as having an entitlement to the Supreme Court justiceship, to having an entitlement to sit on the highest court of the land for the, for the rest of his, of his career. And nothing was going to disrupt that. The status quo was, was not going to be upended, even when someone with the, I would say, authority and the credibility of an Anita Hill came forward. It wasn't going to change the course of events. 
Clarence Thomas was, of course, confirmed to the Supreme Court, sits as a justice today. And that experience was so difficult for many Americans to watch. For many women in particular, women who had experienced their own workplace harassment and, and women who had just lived in the world and felt this to be a very familiar experience, I think, just felt deeply wounded on her behalf. When I recently sat down with Anita Hill, she told me that she heard from those women. When I testified, this woman wrote me and said, there will be waves of women behind you. I immediately started hearing from thousands of people. I mean, the letters were coming in in flood. And those women changed the course of her life. I thought after the hearing that I could just get back to my life. And that wasn't possible. It was not going to be the same. Coming up, my conversation with Anita Hill on her 30-year work to end gender violence, her new book, and the lasting impact of her testimony 30 years later. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. On Close Up This Morning, the Clarence Thomas nomination. When the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas controversy unfolded in September of 1991, I was the newly appointed co-anchor on the Today Show. The Senate is to vote tonight on whether Thomas should get a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. 
But a charge that Thomas sexually harassed one of his employees a decade ago has fueled new last-minute debate over the nomination. The Clarence Thomas nomination had seemed all but assured until rumors of his past behavior spurred a federal investigation behind the scenes of the public hearings. Anita Hill was privately interviewed by the FBI, and her statement was leaked to the press. On October 7th, she came forward publicly and said she would testify. I interviewed her on October 8th. Why do you think we're not hearing about this, or we didn't hear about this until the 11th hour? What took so long from that date until these charges actually surfaced publicly? I don't believe that uh, um, they were necessarily taken seriously. I think this is part of what uh, the frustration that I'm experiencing and Mm -hmm. that a lot of women are experiencing that these kinds of uh, claims and, uh, and statements are not taken seriously. Anita Hill's testimony forced the country to confront sexual harassment, to take accusations seriously for the first time. When I sat down recently with Anita, we talked about how far we have and haven't come all these years later. I remember covering your testimony, and it was really the first time people talked openly and understood what sexual harassment was about. And since then, whether you're talking about Me Too and the reckoning that took place in the last three years, it has really gotten to be out in the open. And yet, it feels like We haven't made enough progress. Why do you think with so much awareness, we haven't made more progress? One of the things that we do very often is we depersonalize it. We, you know, we talk about the numbers, you know, one in four college students will be sexually harassed or assaulted on the college campuses. And what we should be saying is that we send our children to school every year in September. And in reality, we know that that daughter or that niece or that cousin or sister is very likely to become a victim of sexual harassment or assault in that space. We know that, and the numbers are even worse for those who don't go to college. But people want to depersonalize it. They don't want to think about The fact that when you talk about 10 million people per year who will experience intimate partner violence, people don't want to think about the fact that with a number that large, you're talking about people who are in your community. You're talking about somebody who maybe waits on you at a restaurant or somebody who's teaching your children in school. So these are people who you know, could be somebody in your own family. So we we depersonalize it. And because of that, we pretend not to see it. The other reason I think that we haven't done more about it is because we have, over the course of our lives, been groomed to believe that it's not such a big problem. Um, Wow. Well, we hear people tell girls, especially, you know, that behavior that they find that makes them uncomfortable or find even offensive isn't really that bad. It's not so bad. Deal with it. It, it, Deal with it. Or 
you know, you know, boys do it because they like it, or that's just what boys do. And sometimes that language can escalate, so it's not just deal with it, or it, it's more, you know, if you, if you don't shut your mouth, you're going to get in trouble. So there are ways that we prepare not only girls just to live with this problem and not complain, we're also preparing uh, abusers to accept their own bad behavior and expect that other people will tolerate it. And what we heard when we got those 19 million tweets um, with Me Too, with the hashtag Me Too, was that it is a problem. It is a significant problem. It's a harmful problem. And it's something that women and men are living with. Your book is called Believing Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. It's your third book. It's a real representation of you and your work. It's part memoir, but also part legal and social analysis and a lot of personal accounts of women you've met over the years. Why write this book now, Anita? Was the 30-year anniversary the impetus for you to say, let's look back on our progress, let's tell the stories of the women I've gotten to know through these years? It wasn't just the anniversary, although I was mindful of the anniversary, but more importantly, it was the 30 years between 1991 and my testimony and where we are now. This was an opportunity to look at all of the things that have happened in those 30 years and, you know, take stock of where we are. And I'm concluding, of course, that we have a long way to go, yet I really am conceding that we have come far in 30 years. So, Why now? Well, because we've got evidence that really gender violence is at a toxic level. When you take into account this huge range of behaviors that happen uh, under the guise of of gender violence, there are so many different facets of it. I mean, it ranges from bullying and harassment in elementary schools to bullying and harassment in workplaces. It ranges from sexual harassment and assaults and rape on our streets. It includes intimate partner violence in our homes. And the phrases don't even capture the experiences fully. But when you calculate the range when you calculate the human cost and the harm that's being done to us as a society, then what you realize is that we have this enormous problem that needs to be called out as a public crisis. When Me Too happened, I'm just curious what it was like watching it unfold from your perspective. I have been dealing with this, not simply through my own experience, but through the experience of thousands of others. I really honestly was just grateful that people were coming forward and and talking about it and that finally we could, 
you know, convince people that this was a real problem, that this wasn't just a few bad apples or a few people who were too oversensitive, um, that this was a problem that's a social problem, a systemic problem, and that it should be dealt with that way. Because, you know, even up until 2017, and in, in some cases, in, in even today, you have people say, you know, this problem really doesn't exist. It's made up for whatever political reasons, economic reasons, that it doesn't exist. When in fact, we know all of the facts point to the reality of it. I still today hear women and men supporting people who behaved a certain way at the workplace by saying women threw themselves at this person. A lot of these kind of familiar defenses surface. And I'm curious what you think when you hear that. You know, it's, it's another form of denial. I think what it comes down to is our unwillingness to act our fear of acting, and really our desire to to, uh, prioritize the lives and experiences of men over the lives and experiences of women. And I think those will continue. Again, that's still part of the cultural problem, but, but in fact, you know, there are also some systemic problems because in some ways the culture has been built into our systems. So we, we put an extraordinarily high burden on uh, victims, even in elementary schools, to solve their own problems, to be the ones that tell the administrators exactly what's happening, when it's happening, why it was wrong, and to be able, in some sense, to prove that they have been bullied or harassed and or to prove that they deserve to have some attention brought to it. And the problems aren't just in schools. The problems, the systemic problems exist in the criminal justice system throughout. When you take the problem of rape and sexual assault, you know, the fact that we have rape kits that are backlogged, that after an individual goes through the the grueling process of having an examination done, and participating in this effort to find out who her assailant is, that then they get put on the shelf and then warehoused. I mean, that shows us how broken the system is. When I started out this book, I thought, wow, this is really kind of like boiling the ocean because there's so much out there. I've thought about you many times over the years, and one of those times was in, in 2018 during Christine Blasey Ford's testimony against Brett Kavanaugh. There were many differences, but some similarities. Were you shocked by the familiarity of the event, and were you expecting a different outcome? I wanted a different outcome. I wanted a, a process. I wanted you know, something that wasn't even possible from the beginning, I I would have wanted her to have a place to complain. She didn't have a place to complain. I wanted her to have a thorough investigation. What we had was one that was deliberately limited uh, by 
President Trump then, who was the sponsor, who had a vested interest in Kavanaugh being confirmed. You know, I wanted, of course, I wanted a di different outcome. But I think the, the country would have been better off, even if the outcome had remained the same, if there had been a different way for her to come forward and to be heard. And that's really what I wanted. Um, that's not what we got. However, that wasn't the end of it. And we do know that the public reacted very strongly in a negative way toward the outcome uh, and the confirmation specifically of, of just now Justice Kavanaugh. We know that. Again, a sign of progress because there were so many similarities between 91 and 2018. But the public response was quite different. I did hear from people who would say, you know, are we going to go back to high school and blame people for, you know, a boorish behavior or drinking too much? Uh, is this an, uh, sort of an unrealistic purity test? And when people say that, you say what? And this is, there is no purity test uh, so much as there is full disclosure, honesty, and transparency. And if you can't have that with the court, where can you get it? Uh, the people who sit on the Supreme Court are making decisions about all sorts of cases, some of which will include very likely sexual harassment or sexual assault. And we need to understand the full character and integrity of those people who are making those choices. And if that means, you know, going back to the high school, we go back to the high school. You know, we do that anyway for candidates. You go back, you know, they've had elementary teachers testify or write statements in support of candidates, nominees to the Supreme Court. So, you know, it's, it's dishonest then to hide the things that are not so positive, in fact, are very negative. So we need to have all of that. And then the public gets to decide. Why did you call the book Believing? Because it takes a lot of believing to actually boil the ocean. <laughs> I mean, to, to look at the whole of this problem and realize that if you don't look at the whole, if you don't look at this, this enormous um, body of behavior that is happening that's injuring all of us, you're not going to be able to solve the different pieces. And to believe that that it is solvable, because you know another one of the excuses that people raise is that, gosh, this is just the way it is. This is the way it's always been. It's much too big for us to get our arms around. And so let's just you know, you know, let, let's just deal with it. Let, let's push it off on the victims to deal with. So believing for me included 
not only that we need to enlist and believe in survivors and victims, we also need to believe that we are worthy of solutions and that change is possible. I remember the buttons that people wore, I believe Anita Hill, after your testimony. And one question I wanted to ask you about was the notion of believing all women. You know, as a journalist, I've not necessarily struggled with it because I know the statistics, Anita, I know the fact how much courage it does take to to move forward. But in the aftermath of the Me Too movement, as some people felt the pendulum had swung too much, what do you think about the notion of believing all women? I've talked to Jody Cantor of the New York Times a little bit about this, and it it um, it does fly in the face of what journalists are really supposed to do: search for truth and facts. So. I would love you to weigh in and and tell me how you feel about that. Well, we now have a, a culture that assumes that women are lying. Despite all the facts, there's this presumption that women lie about their experiences. Do you think so, that still exists even today? Oh, I, I, I do think it, it exists. I mean, either they believe that women are lying or that, the, that what happens doesn't matter or that it was their fault. Or that it was their fault, yeah. So, so either way, we have decided that men are always telling the truth to, to some extent, or men are all that matter. And so, you know, we've got, we've, we've really, in the face of all the damage that's being done, we have to sort of change our way of thinking and so that's one part. I mean, the, the, the term believe all women is, for me, just our invitation to put in place systems and processes that allow us to be heard and believed. And we're not there yet. And so that is what it means to me believe in us enough to care enough to put systems in that allows us to get to the truth. More with Anita Hill right after this. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Much of this book has a sort of before and after feel of your life, before 1991, when you gave that testimony against uh, then Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, and when you were a tenured law professor at the University of Oklahoma College of Law, the first African-American ever to be tenured, and then after that testimony ultimately upended your life, you moved to Massachusetts, you took a full position at Brandeis, and and embarked on this journey to end gender violence. Can you talk about that moment in between and what led you to that life-changing decision? I thought after the hearing that, first of all, I thought I could just get back to my life and that wasn't possible. It was not gonna be the same. And people think that after I testified, I went back and things were all normal. But you know, from having talked to me about what happened afterwards, that there were threats and there was hostility and there were efforts to get me fired from my job. But after, you know, I got over the realization that it was not going to get back to normal, I actually started looking at what I could do to understand and help other people understand how we might solve the problem of sexual harassment in the workplace. What I realized was that the law alone, and I was trained in, in teaching law, the law alone was not going to be the answer. That the problem was bigger than the laws that we now have in place. So I ended up moving from Oklahoma, leaving a a tenured job for a contract position because it decided I needed to learn more about all of the ways that systems and policies work together to keep this problem in place. And so that's what I did. I just, I I left and I started teaching in a policy school and I was surrounded by people from various disciplines. Um, And I was surrounded by people who were interested in solving social problems generally. 
And that was an environment that allowed me to really grow and to develop uh, many of the ideas that, that come, came into ultimately into the book. Uh, had I not made that change, I think I might have still been somewhat stuck in terms of my thinking. But you know what, Katie, how fortunate I am that I could do that. I had training as a lawyer, but I was also fortunate because I had a, a, a job uh, that was transferable. Right. And I had skills that were transferable to someone place else. And I didn't have to worry about a family that would get, suffer because of changes that I made. Not my immediate family. I mean, you know, I did have to leave um, my parents and, and siblings in Oklahoma, uh, but I left with their support. You must have heard from so many people through the years, Anita, who didn't have transferable skills, who didn't really have marketable skills, who were stuck and trapped with no place to go, no options. And I imagine those were the, the stories that affected you the most. They absolutely are. And I say, not were, they absolutely are the stories. You know, we like to say if more women would just come forward and file complaints, then the problem would be fixed. Now, we're ignoring the fact that the systems that they go into aren't there to fix their problems necessarily. But we are also ignoring the fact that there are costs to people who come forward. And the risk that some people just cannot take when 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 uh, someone says, you know, well, if I take this, I may lose my job. I may not ever be able to get another one. I don't know where I will get another one. You know, my my uh, my boss will be called if, if I try to move to another place. And and what am I going to tell the new employer? I mean, all of those things have to be taken into uh, account. You know, we we make it very, very difficult for people to file complaints, which is one reason we have no idea the real depth of this problem, because there are so many people who will never be able to speak up. That was definitely uh, the case 30 years ago, but you don't think that's changed at all. You don't think that that there has been positive movement in terms of supporting people who, I mean, granted, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Some people don't have the options, but is there some good news? Has the needle moved in any way? The needle has moved. And while there are still people who who cannot make the choices that I made. There are organizations that are supporting people to make the choices that they can make to be safe in spaces. But the resources aren't enough to keep up with the level of the problem. And quite frankly, the forces that really are not interested in solving your problem or my problem are very, very strong. Basically, our systems have failed us. The systems that were meant to solve the problems are not solving them. You know, I, I talk about a woman named Sharon Dunn, 
um, and Sharon Dunn is a, a Ford um, auto worker who filed a suit in, in the 1990s, I believe it was 1998 or 99. Um, Sharon Dunn is still working in the Ford plant and she is now participating in a suit filed 20 years later. So for years, that problem has been going on. So we've got systems that just are not working. Even even in, in that first lawsuit, there was a huge settlement by Ford to improve the conditions that people were working under. Fast forward 20 years later, there's another lawsuit. Things have not changed. But have has anything changed? Absolutely. Something has changed. Hasn't changed for enough people, but some things have changed. We now, one, hear about these lawsuits. We now know about them. We know about the Sharon Dunn's. We now have organizations that are, in fact, really engaged. Uh, you know, I'm on the uh, board of, of the National Women's Law Center. Um, and we are working hard every day, not only to make sure that women are represented, poor women are represented, um, and women of color, uh, because we know that the problems are exacerbated by race and, and, and income level. Uh, we are working with organizations, uh, whether it's people who are organizing restaurant workers or people who are organizing workers in the, who are doing field work and agricultural work. So we're, those things that didn't exist um, in 1991 are now part of the solution. Part of the reason that you're now hearing about sexual harassment and assault in schools is because of the student movement in universities. And those students who move, who were part of a movement in 1995 now are in the workplace and they're part of the movements within the workplaces. You know, we do have people walking out of workplaces because of bad decisions that were made by leadership. Um, so yes, there is energy out there. There is information out there. There are resources out there. And I'm hopeful that this is the moment where those things will come together and we, we can have change. We can push this issue forward and make the world safer for everyone. I would imagine uh, that, that many people are minding their P's and Q's, as my mom would say, in ways they never did because of the consequences that faced many high-profile individuals. Um, do you think that, that the movement has changed corporate America or, you know, startups? I mean, I, I think you can't put everything in the same category, but don't you think men are, are afraid now to, to act the way they have acted, or not all, but some of them have acted for, for decades? I think that after every every event where a rare awareness is raised, including 1991, 
changes happen. I I have heard from women who've told me my my workplace changed in 1991. But clearly it's not enough because if it were enough, we would not have had Me Too. And we still have, you know, whatever the reckoning is, it is not complete. You know, I we did a survey at the Hollywood Commission of Industry Workers. And one of the things that was so startling was that about, oh, let's say 30, 40% of the people we surveyed said that a powerful man will not be held accountable for their bad behavior, even if it is documented. We can't fire our way out of this problem. That's just sort of treating the behavior. And we've got to deal with this as a structural problem. And I think it goes well beyond individual workplaces. You know, it goes uh, really to me all the way to our government. And we actually need to have a president who understands that the problem is bigger. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, but we are so much closer to the answers than we were before. And the answers are, yes, we have to deal with the behavior, but we also have to deal with the structures that are enabling the behavior. You have a lot of experience with President Biden, obviously as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee back in 1991. Uh, You had a lot of white men staring down at you, asking if you were a scorned woman. Uh, citing the exorcist, you know, I know that then Senator Biden made you restate some of the most salacious details, even though it was in your written testimony. He called you to apologize. What was that like, Anita, that, that phone call? Can you share it with us? Well, I talk about it in a little more detail in the book. Uh, but it was it was an odd conversation because I wasn't looking for an apology. I won't say, you know, I was completely over it by the time it happened, but I had really put it in perspective and, and, and uh, Chuck and I even joked about it. You know, like when we were having dinner and the doorbell rang, uh, instead of the FedEx man, we used to think, oh, well, maybe that's Joe Biden coming to apologize. Uh, but, you know, in all seriousness, um, I really wasn't looking for an apology. What I wanted was for somebody to take responsibility. I, I, and over 20 years ago, I had a question from a member of an audience that I was speaking to about what president or what candidate will be the best candidate to deal with problems of sexual harassment and that includes all kinds of misconduct and and abuse. And I've thought about that question every time we have an election because it is an important question and it, it is the right question to be asked, be asking because we need to know what our leaders are going to do about this problem. 
And Joe Biden, for me, was in a particularly important place because of, of 1991, because of his support of the Violence Against Women Act, because of his support of ending harassment and assault in, on college campuses, his effort there and during his time in the Obama administration. He had an opportunity, has an opportunity to be the president who says, I will do everything in my power to make sure that America doesn't continue to suffer this problem. Do you think he will? Are you disappointed with what he's done so far? Well, I think he will if we continue to push it. You remember the apology came after he was pushed fairly often by different people, including journalists. Um, I wasn't one of the people. But I think, you know, he has a lot of work to do, but I think this should be a priority. And I think that unless we, we tell him it's a priority and that we continue to urge it and we show him the evidence of why it should be a priority, uh, he could very well be just like all of the other presidents before and, and pass it on to the next generation. I think when people hear about systemic change and, and changing, you know, societal structures, it is like boiling the ocean. Can you condense or take a, you know, a quart of that water? And if you had to have the solutions or the steps that are necessary to really change said system, what would they be? Well, one thing that I would say is that we need to go back and shore up the Violence Against Women Act. You know, in the year 2000, it was gutted, and the Supreme Court decision basically told Congress that it had no authority to provide protections, uh, uh, federal protections against violence. That was based on this faulty idea that, you know, gender violence didn't impact us nationally. It didn't impact commerce, despite the evidence that was there. Now we have even more evidence. So we now have more reason to go and fortify the Violence Against Women Act. Um, Not just reconfirm it in its existing form, but to make sure we have added protections in there for individuals who want to come forward and want a safe place or a fair and just place, actually, not a safe safe place, not just a safe place, but a fair and just place to be heard. Uh, we need to have uh, policies that take into account some of the harm that's being done to people who experience gender violence. And I mean, very being very intentional and deliberate about it. So we know 10 million people suffering from uh, intimate partner violence. Estimates are that 38% of them will become homeless because of that. 
we need housing policies that take care of those individuals. Right now, we have shelters that are overloaded, and especially since COVID, when the, the numbers of intimate partner violence and domestic violence surged. But reporting declined as well. And reporting declined because there was no safe way to report. And no place to go. And no place to go. And, you know, there are health issues. There are housing issues. We know that, for example, people lose income and economic opportunity because of violence. Either it can be violence, intimate partner violence, or sexual harassment in their workplace that they lose time, or sexual assault, that people lose time and opportunities, uh, work opportunities. We don't have any specific policies to address that problem of, of ongoing economic security for people who have been victims of gender violence. I guess my, the, the, the simplest answer I would give in terms of what I would like and uh, for solutions is to enlist survivors and victims in formulating the solutions to this problem. Bring us into the decision-making, put us at the table when laws are being debated, our policies are being debated. Listen to what we have to say. Now, and then the other thing that I will say, and I talk about this in the book, and we've got to acknowledge that there are all kinds of factors that are compounding this problem. Racism being one, homophobia being another. And we've got, in whatever solutions that we come up with, we have to understand that if we don't get rid of both of those, if we aren't attentive to both of those issues, that we will only be serving a small portion of the population. And we will not be serving the people who are the most vulnerable. Ultimately, Anita, what, what do you think your legacy will be? What do you hope it will be? <laughs> well, I, I hope I have time to add on to it. <laughs> That, that's, I, I'm not ready to, I mean, it, it seems so final. <laughs> I'm not ready for it to be final yet. I could think there's got to be something more that I could think of and that will happen. So um, I do hope that in, 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 even right now that people see me as someone who is coming from a position of having been a victim of bias and harassment but who is invested in solving. A huge thank you to Anita Hill, whose new book is called Believing, Our 30-Year Journey to End Gender Violence. Thank you also to Deborah Turkheimer. Her new book is called Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. Both are out now. And if you haven't already, there's still time to pre-order my book, Going There, before its October 26th release. 
And if you'd like to join me on tour, you can go to Ticketmaster.com slash going there to find out where I'll be traveling and to buy tickets. So I hope to see you all on the road. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.